Are you ready to bring your real estate game to the next level? My name is James Prendamano. I'm the CEO and founder of Pre-Real. And over the past 25 years, I've closed over a billion dollars in transactional real estate. Each week, I'm meeting with outstanding investors, high-performing individuals, and visionaries operating in the real estate space. These are the people that are actually out there in the real estate game right now getting it done. This podcast aims at bringing anyone's game to the next level. This is the Pre-Real Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Pre-Real Podcast. Uh, we're joined today by Kent Ritter. So Kent is uh, the founder of Hudson Investing, a uh, multifamily private, private equity firm, has had a tremendous amount of success, uh, an amazing story. Uh, we're going to talk about the why and, and, and how we got, got to that kind of moment where he, he really decided it was time to, to make a change in, in some of the unbelievable projects Kent's worked on and some opportunities that are out in the market today. Kent, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, James, thanks for having me on the show. Excited to be here. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Anytime we, we can get, a, a, you know, you're young, but but you've got a, a heck of a resume and kind of a grizzled vet, you know, that that understands <laughs> how to do these do things I look the that right bad? way. No, you, you look outstanding. I got to tell you, I'm a bit jealous. <laughs> Um, but your your resume is 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 outstanding, and and you know Kent, there's a lot of folks out there today uh, in the market that are syndicators, uh, but but there's a lot to be to be wary of, right? So mm-hmm. anytime we can have a pro on, uh, we're real excited. So uh, before we get into the, the the deal points and and the work that you're doing over uh, at, at Hudson Investing. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your background? Um, I, I always find it fascinating. Uh, there's these kind of common threads that I find that us serial entrepreneurs all share. So before your real estate days, let's 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 go back to when Kent was a young lad, uh, you know, and talk <laughs> yeah. a little bit about how you ended up in the management company, and then we'll take it from there. Yeah, sure. So I uh, I went to college at IU. Uh, you know, Indiana boy grew up here, right? IU basketball and all and all those good things. Kind of was preordained that that's where I'd go to college. So, went to IU, studied business, uh, studied finance and, and econ uh, specifically. And then when I was coming out of school, it seemed like everybody that was uh, everybody was going into either investment banking or or management consulting. And so I uh, decided that, you know, I didn't want to work the 120 hours a week. So I decided to go into management consulting. And, and honestly, uh, I thought that it would be a good opportunity because I, I had always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I always knew I wanted to own my own business. I didn't at that point know exactly what that business would be, but I saw management consulting as a great way to just see a lot of different businesses and kind of understand how businesses work. And, and that was exactly what the experience I got. You know, I was a management consultant for 12 years and I flew all around the country uh, every week to different clients and saw hundreds of different businesses and helped them solve some really difficult problems. And so it, it really was that it was getting to see a lot of different ways and how businesses work and how they operate and what works and what doesn't, and just get a really, just kind of a crash course in, in how to solve problems. Cause that's all we ever did. Nobody called us when things were going well. <laughs> so it was, uh, I, th- I think just a great foundation for, what I'm doing now, uh, which is, you know, we were running large scale multimillion dollar projects um, and it translates really well in, into what we do from a real estate perspective. Yeah. At, at our core, we're all problem solvers, 
Right. Mm-hmm. So right. I, I think that background um, and I've always been a bit fascinated with management consultants. Uh, I, I do a bit of business consulting myself, so uh, I can parachute in and out of different businesses with really uh, almost no experience in the business itself. But mm-hmm. as problem solvers, there's things that are kind of in our DNA that we see uh, the, on the chessboard that others may not. Uh, and, and as it translates into real estate, um, that and I think tenacity are probably my my two biggest attributes that have helped me to uh, have some success in the investing side of things. So, yeah, uh, you know, you mentioned that you always wanted to to be an entrepreneur. Um, was you know family, mom and dad? What was the influences there? Yeah, man, that's a good question. Uh, no, my family was not. Uh, my mom was a school teacher. Uh, my, my dad, uh, worked, uh, really worked for the state. Didn't, didn't make a, a great salary. And, and he, he passed away when I was, uh, in eighth grade. So pretty early. Uh, so really a lot of my, my, my life, what I remember at least being in high school I was living off kind of a, a single teacher salary. So, you know, we didn't really have, didn't have a ton, didn't want, but didn't have a ton and, uh, but didn't really have it. No, nowhere. There's nowhere I can look where I could say, yeah, there's an entrepreneur I really wanted to follow. I, I think I just always recognized that I wanted more. Uh, I always wanted more. I, I felt like as I as I looked and kind of studied, and it was always the people that owned businesses that kind of had what I wanted, I, I guess, or, or that sure. seemed to be more successful, right? And so I thought that that was a great path, and and I, I've always just been a leader and I've always wanted to be a leader. I've never wanted to be, I've never wanted to follow others. And so I think, you know, that, that all kind of plays into uh, just being an entrepreneur and owning your own business. And um, yeah, but, but no, I didn't really have a path to follow. It was almost kind of the opposite. I knew, I knew like what I didn't want. Right. And and so I I had, I knew I had to do something different uh, to get what I wanted. And so I think that was, that was part of it at the very beginning. So mom is out crushing it you know, single income family, as you, as you noted, you're, you're seeing what you want. And, and, and I think that that certainly is as, uh, as much of a motivator as anything else looking mm-hmm. kind of across the aisle and, and aspiring to, to reach for that. You you mentioned that you've always been a leader. Um, and I think in our own way uh, in real estate, as we lead these types of deals, we're all leaders in one way or another, but uh, at what age did you did you really start to even understand leadership? You know, it, it's something that I'd always been interested in, right? E- even I remember being like little with my friends and, and wanting to be the one like, you know, <laughs> in charge for lack of a better word, right? Uh, or captain, you know, different on the teams, different things. I mean, always wanting to be kind of in that position. Um, and, and always something that kind of fascinated me, like even when, when I would watch movies, um, you know, I, and, and just seeing those people, whether it was like, you know, my dad was really into like military movies. And so looking at generals and different things, I kind of started studying that stuff and just understanding the, those folks. Um, it, it just always fascinated me how you can influence people to, to, I mean, essentially do what you want to do, but, but not in a negative way, more like inspiring. Right, more inspiring people and how you do that, and and I think that always just kind of fascinated me. It still does, I mean, the psychology of it all. And so I, I recognized, you know, at an early age, that's that's really what I wanted. And and I think that, 
Um, you know, and I think that just, that kind of developed over, over time into where I'm at today. I, I think at times though, while I was interested in it, I was, you know, uh, scared, maybe scared is the right word, uh, to kind of take that position and where I've really had to grow my own personal growth, uh, over the past, I mean, God, it's probably been 15 years now since really consciously like being in the business world and, and focusing on that is really becoming comfortable stepping into that spotlight and being able to take that role and, and just, you know, being the one that, that wants the ball, you know, when there's two seconds left on the clock, right. That, that kind of thing. And, and so I've really kind of matured into that, but I think even when I, my younger years, when I was interested, I think it was, it was still kind of scary to, to kind of be that person that everybody's looking at. Like, like I'm naturally a pretty introverted person, not a big fan of the spotlight, um, just in my own personal life. And so I think, I think that all kind of plays into it too. And I've really had to evolve into somebody that's like comfortable in the spotlight and comfortable being the one, uh, that's going to get it done when, when it's on the line. Yeah. So interesting um, that you're an introvert kind of outside of what I call my my element. I'm the same way. Um, mm-hmm. I've always had a very, very difficult time being in the spotlight. I didn't want to be in the spotlight. But when I was in my game, when I was in what I knew, it just the, the switch flips and, and you lead. And I, I mm-hmm. came to learn uh, pretty late in life, uh, to be honest, Kent, that Leadership meant so much more than just the actions you take in that moment. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we we started a book club here a couple of years ago. And we ran through a bunch of the Maxwell books on leadership, and it really helped to to round out what being a leader means because it is so much more than than just taking the reins in those moments. And and I didn't realize what a profound impact you know can we we have on people throughout mm-hmm. our lives when you're in that position. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think that's what's so cool about it now is realizing the impact that you can have on people's lives and actually seeing the value that you can create. And I think that's one of the things to me now being a business owner is, you know, I just feel like as a business owner, you're creating, you're kind of creating the most value that that you can, right? You're, you're able to impact the most people, uh, whether it's our residents or investors or just the, the people that have worked, worked for me now or have in the past. I think it's just awesome seeing them grow and develop and being able to just even pay salaries, right? And create jobs. Like, I just, I think that that it's really amazing to me, the, like the, the impact that you could have as an entrepreneur. It is. And it's it's incredibly rewarding watching the team come up around you. I've got some 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 team members that have been with me over 20 years now uh, and watching them come into their own, get married, have kids, buy their first home, buy investment properties and watching that growth. It, it's it really is an incredibly rewarding experience to see the, the team succeed around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So, so you, you, you're essentially playing a pivotal role in a management company. Uh, you, you, the business grows to 95 employees, $30 million a year in revenue. Uh, you're, you're rocking and rolling, Kent. So what, what, what was the trigger for you at that point to say, no, this isn't for me? 
Well, it, it really was, uh, you know, you say like, well, it's a line in Godfather, like you get it, you got an offer you couldn't refuse, right? It was kind of what, what happened to us. It was, we were uh, doing our thing. We, we were building our consulting firm. The technology that we had really focused on uh, had really taken off at that time. We we're kind of riding that wave, tremendous growth. And then we started getting, I think we got one and then we got two unsolicited offers uh, to buy the business. Um and, and that really got us thinking about, you know, we started having those discussions as partners, like, do well, you know, should we sell? Do we want to sell? Do we want to do this for another five years? You know, what, where do we want to be? And I think as we all sat around the table, we realized that it had been a pretty hard grind for five or six years. And, and this, and we, we got, and, you know, uh, we got a multiple, uh, even on the initial offers that, that we never really thought we'd be able to achieve. And then, uh, so we thought, well, yeah, maybe we should look into this a little more. And so we, you know, we, we went out and we hired, um, an investment bank and we ended up, you know, going to market with the business and chopping it around. And, um, yeah, but it was ultimately just getting those offers and that put it on our radar to say, wow, well, you know, uh, you know, you get it, you get a good offer, you know, sometimes you shouldn't look to look the gift horse in the mouth. Right. No, without, without a doubt. So, um, your success really is, is what leads to, to this transition. So now there's, uh, the company is sold and yeah. Yeah. So I ended real estate. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So that's a good question. Well, I mean, it really, real estate started to be a very personal thing in that I just, I had this extra capital and I didn't want to throw all my eggs into one basket in the stock market. Mm-hmm. I, I needed to diversify. And so that's what led me to kind of looking for alternatives. Cause all I had ever done prior to that was invest in the stock market. And so, uh, led me to alternatives, uh, led me to just start researching different things. Real estate really fit a lot of things I was looking for, you know, being non-correlated with the stock market, uh, you know, which allowed me to diversify producing some cash flow. Cause I wasn't sure what, what I wanted to do next. I wasn't sure if I wanted to jump into another business. I wasn't, you know, so I like just some passive cash flow, appreciation, tax savings, all that good stuff, right? All the reasons we do it. And um, you know, really I, I started out just by finding somebody that was close to me, a family friend who was doing some real estate investing himself and just saying, okay, hey, you know, what, what's this all about? And so I really started out doing what he was doing, which was buying notes and, and you know, really being the debt and building out a note portfolio. Um, and that was that was cool. I, I did by four or five of those before one of those uh about a year later, a house got paid off. And you know, you're on the you're on the statement, the closing statement, because you're getting your loan paid back. And I'm like, wow, this guy just doubled his money. This house doubled in value in one year. Uh, and it's cool. I'm getting my, my money paid back. That's all well and good. But like this guy doubled his money. I was like, I need to start buying assets instead of holding the debt. And so that really uh, turned me on to, you know, starting to do some fix and flips, starting to do some, some single family rentals, uh, build out a, a single family duplex portfolio with a couple of buddies from college. We ended up with about 11 units. We're doing three or four flips a year. Um, and that was fine too. But like, that's hard work. I don't know if you yeah. guys have, you know, flipping is a full-time job. Uh, and so none of it was scalable enough, right? Like we were making good money, but it wasn't scalable enough for me. Like, like that was what I was trying to bring to really that group who, I mean, one of my friends had been flipping houses for 15 years since we had graduated college and he was doing three or four a year in self-funding. And I was like, Hey, let me pump some capital into this. Let's scale it. 
Um, and we just, we just hit, um, you know, we just figured it was harder than we thought to scale, yeah. you know? And so, so I was like, okay, well, th- that was all well and good. And at that time I was really learning about apartments though. I was really learning about apartments and multifamily and really getting engrossed in that and, and really met a couple of mentors that had my eyes open. I'm like, wow, this is how you scale. This is how you go buy a hundred units at one time, you know? Um, and that just made all the sense in the world to me because that was one of the big things that I learned being a management consultant was as a business, you've got to be growing and there's safety in scale. And so the bigger you can get, oftentimes, if you do things right, there's safety in that size. And so, so that's what I saw. And so that's what I was like, we got to scale, we got to scale. And so that's what really brought me to apartments. And then I learned about syndications. And then I started investing with other people. And, and instead of doing the work myself, I started investing with others and said, wow, I'm getting you know, not as good as flipping a house, but it's a hell of a lot less work to just hand somebody a hundred thousand dollars and have them give you 15, 20% back. Right. Yep. And so I did that until really the end of 2019. So it was about a three and a half, almost four year period where I was just doing kind of figuring my way and learning about syndications and investing with other people. And until 2019, when I, I had been through, you know, I've listened to all the podcasts, read all the books, been through the courses, found a couple of great mentors who could, you know, help me avoid some pretty large potholes. And that's when I launched Hudson Investing because I felt comfortable enough to, to actually bring other people's money on. Because up to that point, I'd only invested with my own capital. Mm. And so, you know, I, I didn't want to ever lose anybody else's money. So I wanted to be really sure I knew what the hell I was doing. So in 2019, we launched that at, at the end, was, I think it was October of 2019, we acquired our first property, two properties, a two property portfolio with a couple of partners down in Atlanta. It was 250 units. And that was the first syndication. And that was the first time I, I raised capital from others and really ran the deal. And then from there, now, now you kind of fast forward and we're on our 11th uh, acquisition right now. Tremendous. So I, I love that you, um, you went through a, a number of different iterations because I, I think it's, it's very hard to understand uh, all of the different elements. What you just described, uh, and for those of you uh, listening, that's a, a hell of a wide birth there from notes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if they were performing or defaulted uh, yeah. the, to the Burr strategy, which again, <laughs> I laugh uh, when I, when I see what I call the TikTok investors that make it look so easy, right? Yeah. The, the Burr yeah, It's strategy. not that easy. It's not it's, that easy when your contractors don't show up, you know, yeah. and you're, you're sitting there. Yeah. The only way to scale, because I, I went through a similar path, right, is you have to start a construction company. And now, now yeah. you're in a whole nother universe of things that are not really uh, relevant to our core, you know, uh, things yeah. that we want to be working on. Right. That's not my skill set. Right. Like, like I'm the first that's like whenever I walk a property, I always bring, uh, you know, a GC I know with me, bring the maintenance guy from our, from the property manager company use because because I know like that's my blind spot. Like I am not a you know, I, I, I can do handy stuff, but I'm not a construction person by any means. And I don't have that knowledge. And so, yeah, exactly right. For me to go out and think I could start a construction company would not be my highest and best use or, or digging into my skill set. Yeah. So you, you really quickly bring um, organization and scale to this process of identifying and acquiring multifamilies. So uh, mm-hmm. we're, were any of those properties along the way outside of the multifamily class, or has that been the sweet spot for you straight through? 
well, besides the initial single families and duplexes mm-hmm. that we were doing, everything else that we've done up to this point has all been multifamily. And it's it's ranged from 29 units up to 132 units is, is our largest. So we've done uh, kind of all different things. I, I tell people, you know, we really play in kind of a sweet spot in that maybe 30 to 200 unit space. So okay. it's, it, it's bigger than a lot of like the, the loan operators, you know, that c- can go out and, and buy on their own. It's smaller than where a lot of the institutions and REITs are playing kind of 200 plus. And so we, we, I think there's a nice little pocket there that we focus on. Yeah, there, there sure is. So, um, could you walk the audience through, because there's a lot of steps involved in what you're describing, right? There's finding the right management people. There's finding mm-hmm. the right debt partners, the right equity partners. Um, yep. There's software that's involved. Uh, there's real estate partners identifying and sourcing. There's market identification. That's a lot, right, mm-hmm. that, that's going on at once. Uh, could you walk the audience through just what that process was like? Where do you start where do you where do you finish? Not that we ever finish in, yeah. in pulling that together, Kent. Yeah, well, I, I think if you're if you're looking to start a, a syndication business or, or a business where you're, where you're going to be raising money uh, from other people, I mean, there, there's really two critical things. If it's a real estate business, one is you got to have deal flow, and you got to have investors. And so, you know, I, I would start there. I would start with building relationship. So. Again, if you're going to do multifamily and you're going to do larger multifamily, most of the market is controlled by brokers. So you really have to start building broker relationships. I mean, it's really difficult to to think you're going to go direct to seller on a hundred unit property. It's just, uh, I mean, sellers at that scale are sophisticated enough to know they're going to get the most money if they go to market. And so why, why wouldn't they? Because they're going to make more money. Uh, So you really have to build brokers relationships with brokers because they really are the gatekeepers to the deals. Uh, And you have to build good relationships because they don't send the best. I wouldn't say this. The best deals don't make it to the broad marketing blasts, right? Like, and they definitely don't make it to LoopNet. And so if (laughs) if you're looking for larger multifamily deals and like LoopNet, or you're just kind of going through the large, like the marketing blast, because you signed up on the broker website, like I can guarantee you that 30 to 50 of like their good clients have already picked through those before they made it to that point. And so that's Absolutely. why the broker relationships are so important because you want to be, you want to be on that short list for that broker. You want to be top of mind for that broker. So, so that's number one. Number two is the investors. You have to start creating relationships with investors. And, and, and I, I'll tell you this, and I've heard this from a lot of successful capital raisers. I underperformed, like when I, I only raised half the amount I thought I was going to be able to raise the first time I went out to raise money. And that's not me. I hear you hear it from a lot of other people Um, because I underestimated uh, how difficult it was going to be. Honestly, you know, I under, what I underestimated was the fact that people see me in a lot of different ways. Um, You know, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a college buddy, maybe it's uh, we're on the softball team, maybe it's you know, we went to high school together, right? Maybe maybe we go get beers on Fridays, right? Those are those are all ways that people view me. Um, that's very different than being viewed as a as a professional person who somebody is going to trust giving a hundred thousand dollars to, 
that, 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 and that they're going to get their money returned. Yeah. Right. And so I think where I thought of, oh, you know, and I, I had success in business, right. So I had other things to point to, but even going, uh, you know, to colleagues who knew me as a management consultant and saying, oh, now we're doing real estate. They're like, what real estate? Like, where's this coming from? Like, what do you know about real estate? Right. Uh, I didn't start early enough. So, so my whole message is I tell people like, look, you need to start talking with people about real estate and about what you're going to be doing and raising money six months before you actually ask them for money so that they can warm up to this idea and start to view you as someone that they could picture giving their money over to because you've showed them expertise, you showed them consistency, right? And you've you've projected yourself as this kind of professional real estate investor. So what you just described, um, I think is perhaps the single largest thing that people overlook. The, the, the challenge of pulling that together and instilling that confidence and the, the, the fiduciary weight that that puts on us, right? As we take in outsiders' money, that, that's a profound um, commitment to make, right? And, yeah. and it, it's, uh, it, it's a, a weight that many of us carry uh, and we don't take that lightly. It, you know, this is this is real stuff here. So, you're- yeah, it, yeah. I was just, I was going to say like, uh, and, and I think what what you'll see is like a lot of those people, like in your first deal, people are investing in you. They're not investing in in the real estate, right? It's like your aunt. It's your you know the people, your cousins. I mean, whoever, right? And they're like, okay, you know, uh, we're family. We trust you. That kind of thing. What I noticed was maybe deal, it was probably deal like three or four, where it was more that like second level outside of like close friends and family, maybe his coworkers and things started to come in because they're kind of like, oh, okay, like, yeah, maybe he actually does know what he's doing, right? He's got a few under his belt, like, okay, you know, because I had a lot of people first be like, you know, we're not in for this one, but like, let's see how it goes, right? And, and so, you know, then it kind of started to open the floodgates a little bit later, but, but you have to have the, that kind of proof, like the proof of concept. Absolutely. So are you at that point raising um, commitments to fund? And then as a deal came, you went out or did you actually have a deal at that point? You had it under diligence and you're going through, you know, third parties and then you went out. But which way did you do it? So, um, yeah, let me think. So that first deal that first deal, yeah, we really we had it under contract, and like wow. we were we were moving, and we're like we got to raise this money. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Like I said, I I didn't start like I should have started six months a year ahead of time, and, and I, I had had some conversations, but again, it goes back to kind of that introvert personality, right? Like it was hard for me to get out and, and feel like because I had I I had the wrong mindset. I had the mindset that I was asking for a favor, right? Right. I had the mindset. I was asking them for a favor. I was asking them for money. Yeah. It's not what we're doing. Now we're doing it all. We're offering people an opportunity to get better returns than they can get anywhere else. Yeah. And that that's a very different mindset when you approach people to talk about it. Right. And it's, it's, it's a scarcity mindset versus like an abundance mindset, right. Of like, you know, I don't, I don't really need your money because I've got a fantastic opportunity. I know that the money, the money is going to come in because the deal is here 
and and I've got my stuff together now. I've got the track record and all this, right? And it's not a, in a cocky way at all. It's just in a confident way. Uh, but I think if if you go out needy, right? People can smell that. If you're like, oh, I need you to give me this money. It's like, it's like the money's only as valuable as, as how you're able to put it to work. Right. That's so right. if I know I can confidently off give people 20, 25% returns, uh, they, they can't get that anywhere else. And so I know that they're lucky to be in, in the deals. With, with, and, without a doubt, man, the, the access to the deal is the value, the expertise to execute the deal. That's mm-hmm. the value. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and the not having to go through the headaches and pains of doing it yourself. Right. Yeah. And just being able to write a check and sit on the sidelines and, and be able to rely on me and my team who, who has the infrastructure and has the knowledge and the data and everything else um, to make it work. And so, um, so I think, I think though that mindset shift was huge for me as far as capital raising and just the confidence to get out there in front of people and tell them what I'm doing and show them what we're doing. And, and then that really opened up the floodgates. Yeah. I was having a conversation just this morning with one of the, the younger guys that works uh, with me here. Um, and he's, he's done a few deals. I've worked with him on a few deals that we've done together, super sharp kid. And he's looking to bring a little bit of scale. He wants to do this a little bit more and he's a bit gun shy in, in the ask. So we were talking mm-hmm. through the approach and what that means. And, and I explained to him, you know, I've never in 25 years ever come across a great deal that did not get funded, right? It, if you have the deal and the expertise to execute, believe me, folks are going to want to put their money with you and they're going to want to put, put their money in the opportunity. That's the value. Mm-hmm. Having that inside track, having the brokerage, being able to get those deals, that's what it's all about, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think where people, uh, I, I think that's exactly right. I, I think the caveat of that is you you still have to build the network, mm-hmm. right? You still have like if if you're just sitting there with a the deal and you're not telling anybody about it, like that money's <laughs> not coming. Like that's where when I hear like uh, gurus or whoever say like if you got a great deal, like the the money will come. It's like that's true as long as you know enough people. Like you right. got to you got to have that network, right? Because if you know, and I think that's where people go wrong. It's like, well, if you're sitting in your basement with a great deal, like how are, how are people going to find out about you? Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And that's where like, that was for me, like, like starting the podcast and doing these things that like, for me, were very difficult to get over just my own limiting beliefs. But, but I just, I, I think uh, we were talking about like purpose and why and, and things earlier. And, and, and to me, once I got really clear on, on my why and my purpose that's what allowed me to overcome all those limiting beliefs because my my purpose for doing it was bigger than my own insecurities. You know, I, I had a reason to 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 move forward even if it felt extremely uncomfortable to me. So that is some profound stuff. Your purpose uh, was was larger than your limiting uh, insecurities, and yeah, that's some profound stuff there, man. And that's that's. That's a hell of a motivator. Um, okay, so let's talk deals. You're you're now taking these deals down. Uh, you've got the infrastructure. You've got a pathway. You have access to investors. Kent, when you're looking to identify these deals, are you looking in one particular geographic location, or what does that process look like? 
Yeah, good question. So we we focus with it, uh, throughout the Midwest. Uh, mm-hmm. Primarily, it's Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky. And then as we grow, we're expanding out into geographies. But I really started out with taking a, about a three hour radius around Indianapolis, where I live, and saying, okay, you know, these are this is going to be where I focus. Um, really staying out of Illinois, uh, just because Illinois is not a business friendly state. But you know, all those other states were were up for grabs. And so I started, uh, that's, that's how I started networking, right. And started building relationships in those cities. And so like right now we have properties in, in Indiana or in Indianapolis, um, Louisville, Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Dayton, Ohio. And so, um, you know, we, we started just kind of growing out from Indianapolis and growing into the, those other, uh, major Midwestern cities. And so when we're looking for deals, uh, it really, to me, it starts with that market, right? It starts with what are the markets that we want to be in? And, and we like to be in markets that are really similar to Indianapolis, um, meaning they have a lot of job diversity. There's good job growth. There's uh, non-cyclical jobs. So I like the things I love about like Indianapolis or Louisville or Lexington, um, I mean, actually, actually, all those cities I just mentioned—Cincinnati, Dayton—they all have major universities. Um, you know, they all have good healthcare bases, right? So you think about higher ed, you think about healthcare, you think about government, uh, you think about military. Like these are those are non-cyclical jobs. Those are jobs that that don't go up and down uh, as we have recessions uh, historically, and so it's a solid base, right? Because nothing moves more closely uh, with rent growth than job growth. So you really have to look where are the jobs going and where is there a good job base? And you just don't want to be in a town that everybody's employed by one company, right? And that one company go, goes out. So you need job diversity, right? You want a lot of different employers. So it really starts there. Um, and then as we, as we drill down into uh as we drill down into neighborhoods and submarkets, we're really looking at, you know, what are the incomes in the area? What are home values? Uh, you know, what is crime? How are the schools, right? Those are four things that we really, we really hone in on. I've actually, over the years, I've grown a list. The list is something like 35 now, of like 35 key things I look for in any deal. Uh, and wow. it, it's, it, it's all those things, but it's just over time you realize you're like, wow, why did, why would, maybe that was more important than I thought it was going to be. You know, I need to look at that next time. One thing that we've realized is extremely important is proximity to an interstate. Mm-hmm. And it's because the, you know, if you're, if you're close to an interstate, it just expands how far you can get in a 20 minute period, you know, how far you can get to a job, right. Or to school or to anything. So, so we love properties that are close to interstates. Um, anyway, things like that. So that's how we kind of dig into the neighborhood. And then only after you're like, yes, it's a market I want to be in. Yes, it's a neighborhood I want to be in. Are we looking at the property and saying, okay, well, this is, this is a property that we want to own. And then we're starting to look at criteria such as, you know, the vintage of the property. I mean, I mean, 99% of what we buy is 1980s and newer, um, you know, looking at the construction, looking at the roofs, looking at, you know, uh, and kind of digging in and, and then looking especially at uh, one thing I neglected to mention, hugely important, the comps in the area, right? Because if you're going to go in and you're going to add value, you're going to improve the property. Well, what's the point in doing it if you can't add, if you can't increase the income on the property, right? If you can't raise the rents. I mean, that's kind of why we're in this and why our investors are in this is for a return. And if, and if you're already top of the market and rents aren't growing, 
then there, there's really no reason to, to dig any further. So you got to look, when you're looking at the submarket, you got to look at the rent comps and say, where do you sit? Uh, and I think an extremely important thing to look at is, is where does, where is rent compared to the incomes? And that's why we look so closely at incomes. I mean, look at a rent to income ratio. I mean, and we don't want that rent to income ratio to be above 30% after we come in and raise rents through our renovations, because we know above that, that's when people become quote unquote rent burdened and it becomes difficult, uh, difficult to pay that much rent. So, so we like markets. That's what the Midwest is beautiful because in many markets in the Midwest, I mean, the rent to income ratio for folks is kind of in the twenties, you know, maybe low twenties. And so we know that it, it's relatively affordable. I and mean, everybody's talking about how, how crazy rents are growing right now, Yep. but in the Midwest, relatively speaking, compared to the West coast, East coast, South rents are still relatively affordable. And there's a lot of room they could still grow where people can still pay, uh, still pay and still, still um, have a decent rent to income ratio. So folks, that's what a real syndicator sounds like. So many of the metrics that he's touched on, you, they're they're just absent from so many of these decks that that I'm seeing in the last maybe six to eight months. Man, the market is has heated up to such a point that these syndicators are buying payments. They're not buying quality real estate. Are you, are you experiencing that? Yeah, you know, I, I I still invest passively quite a bit, so I still get I still get a lot of decks. I I still think I think the craziest thing I've seen lately was um, a deal out of, uh, I think it was, it was either Phoenix or Vegas. I can't remember. It was one of those markets. And it was like, you know, int- I mean, we're projecting interest rates are going to be at 6%. So like in, in, the, in one of the deals that we have out right now, that's what we're, we're underwriting a 6% interest rate um, with a rate cap. And so I saw, I saw a deal come out as like a three cap purchase price. Um and I don't remember what they had interest rates at, but but I remember that the cash flow in the first year was negative, and so the uh, so the so what was actually happening was there was there was negative cash flow from operations in the first year. So actually, the pitch was that the the bank was going to finance um, an additional amount to cover their own interest payment. So kind of <laughs> uh, in in that first year uh, to get it through, I was like, man, this feels like. 07 like housing bubble stuff. This is like right. a this is like a hundred percent leverage, right? This is like uh the what was the movie, the big short, like that kind of stuff. Uh, and I was like, so um, so I have seen some some interesting stuff coming out. I think as people start to rectify, okay, three caps are wonderful if it can be a five cap by year two, but but if your interest rate is a six percent, how do you get through those first couple of years? Those deals are gonna be tough. Yeah, we're finding in some of these opportunities, quote unquote, there's no parity between inflation and rates, right? We're seeing loss to lease and rent projections skyrocketing, but mm-hmm. expenses are stagnant. Yeah. It's like, you know, there, there, there's so many devils and there's so many details, folks, that that you really need to make sure that when you're participating in these types of opportunity, you have someone seasoned, someone who knows what, what, where all of these little um, that become massive, massive issues can lie in a deal. Um, yeah. uh, and I love that you're, 
you're focusing on markets and then seeing what deals fit in the market, not, well, here's a deal that's out of four cap. Let's, let's go jump into this state. And here's a, a four and a half down. Let's go jump into that. There's a lot of that going on, Matt. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of craziness out there. Yeah. It, it's a very interesting time. You know, I, I think the next 18 months, the two years are, is going to be a lot more of this. I think it's going to be a lot of uh, people trying to figure it out. Right. And maybe that strategy that was working doesn't work anymore. You know, it's yeah. happened really quickly. It's happened in a matter of like two months, right. As rates have moved up. I mean, all of a sudden deals that were penciling don't pencil anymore. And, and I think, um, I guess where I feel fortunate is, is just in the markets that we're in, we were always relatively higher cap rates, relatively lower rent growth expectations and, and, and relatively more stable. Right. So it kind of fits into, I look at it as kind of this bastion of safety when everything else is going crazy out here. I mean, I stopped looking at my stocks cause I looked at it. The S and P was down 20% year over year. And I'm like, it's too much red for me. I'm only, I'll just look at my real estate portfolio over here. <laughs> still, you know, that's actually still appreciating. But um, I think that, yeah, I think the next couple of years are going to be just a huge fluctuations. If you look at interest rate, like forward curves, which is what we watch, you know, you see this peak, uh, at least for like a SOFR rate, which is what we base uh, our, our variable debt that we have on is benchmarked off that. So as it moves up, so does our rate. Uh, it's kind of this peak out in July, August of next year. And then it starts to normalize and come down, but not, not even to where we are today. So, I mean, we're looking long-term at five, five and a half percent interest rates perhaps. And yeah. now with the caveat, the interest rate curves are never right. You know, they're, that's the best info we have right now. And historically they've always been wrong, but um, I don't, I don't think that we're back to the craziness that we were back to was 0% lending rates for the Fed, right? I just, I think that that world has passed us. So I think people are going to have to get comfortable with higher interest rates. I think over time that will adjust, uh, sellers will have to adjust their expectations. You know, I think we will see some softening. The only thing that I think comes over to that and totally blows everything I just said out of the water is the fact that there's still about $5 trillion sitting in bank accounts, Yep. Like, like we created, I, I don't know, what was the number during COVID nine or 11 trillion? I don't remember something crazy. Like yep. it's like half or something of, of the money in the world. Um, and like 5 trillion of that is still sitting in bank accounts. It, it has not been deployed. So I think when that money starts to be deployed, I think that money does seek out hard assets. I don't think it seeks out services. I think it seeks out tangible assets. And so everything I said could to be, be, just be totally wrong and prices continue to skyrocket and cap rates continue to go down just because the amount of money searching for yield. Yeah. Uh, but I think, I think you've hit the nail on the head and, and there, look, there's ways to hedge, right? Uh, if your, your models are telling you that there's going to be a, a, a peak and, and it's impossible of course, to peg exactly when these things happen, but through yeah. the use of responsible debt and paying a little bit more for that debt now to have caps yeah. on our increases and, and let us get to the other side of the rainbow, right? Yep. We could still make these deals not only work, but be immensely profitable throughout this process. That's right. I mean, everything I said is just crystal ball future stuff, right? And, and my crystal ball is just as murky as anybody else's. I think what you said is exactly right. You just have to be setting yourself up for success 
in a worst case scenario, right? And and it's more, I think here's here's the difference to me because I, I speak to a lot of investors. The difference between the seasoned investors and the new investors are the new investors are concerned about the IRR and the cash on cash and all that stuff, but particularly the IRR, right? Like 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 a new investor will invest in a sixteen or an eighteen versus sixteen just because it's an eighteen, right? Mm-hmm. Regardless of where it's at or whatever. A seasoned investor, when they ask questions, it's all about the downside. What type of debt do you have? Do you have a rate cap? What's your debt service coverage? How much leverage? Right. It's all it's all about the downside. Yeah. Um, and I think and that I mean you can see the difference in the sophistication there and just the type of questions. And so I think if you're if you know as investors, you guys should be focusing focus on the downside because like there's a Warren Buffett quote, right? Which is like first rule: don't lose your money. Like that's the most important thing. <laughs> Over the long term, real estate will continue to appreciate. It it always has. So appreciation will come. Um, but just focus, you know, you got to focus on the downside, focus on on cash flows, um, really hone in on people's assumptions. Rent, rent expense growth assumptions are extremely powerful because they're they're compounding, right? So right. if I say, okay, it's gonna grow four percent, and then another four, and another four, and another four, like you know, the each time it's compounding growth. It's, it's why compounding interest is, is so powerful, but it's kind of in the other way. So you, I'd say the most important thing on deals is, is just challenge assumptions. Um, and even though I, 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 I realistically think cap rates will stay flat, um, we never underwrite that way, right? We're always building in a cushion uh, because we want to underwrite to the downside. Yeah. And, then it, and then if what I actually think is going to happen happens, then we just look like heroes. It's great. Uh, absolutely. So um, um, I think what we're going to see here uh, as we're looking through our murky crystal balls, right? Um, I think it's actually going to get to a point, Kent, where <clears throat> some of these small to mid cap fund slash banks that um, put debt out in places. Now, primary markets became secondary, secondary became tertiary, and right. those tertiaries became primaries. So like, what, what, what happened here, folks? Um, that's what I was referencing, buying payments, not looking yep. at that long list of metrics that you have to be looking at before you you place your yep. money. Uh, I, I'm, I fear that uh, the big banks are starting to make some moves that are going to suck that capital out of those smaller and mid caps. Banks are going to fall out of compliance and there's going to be a bit of a, a debt crisis where when it comes mm. time to refinance, what some of these new speculators don't understand is there is a time when there's no capital available from institutions. Yes. Right. The, yeah, they, and I, I, I think you, you're making a, a, a great point. Uh, it's the other thing that I really look for when I'm evaluating deals and something something that we don't do is, you know, we're never we're never underwriting the refinance in a way that like the de- like we're never going to do a deal if it doesn't work if you don't refinance because right. a refinance, like you said, is not guaranteed. And there and there have been times in this in this world where you can't go and you you can't get credit. And so I think the deal has to stand on its own. And then, and then if you refinance, everything should just look better, right? It shouldn't be predicated on, on a, a refinance. Yeah. So uh, look, Kent, you, you've, you've dropped some really genuinely amazing knowledge today. I'm, I'm so appreciative, folks. You've got to check out uh, Ritter on Real Estate. He's got a tremendous podcast packed with great guests amazing, valuable information. Uh, where where else can folks find you, Kent? 
Yeah, you can reach me at my my website, kentritter.com. That's the, the easiest place to find me. We've got uh, we've got a weekly blog. You can access the podcast there if you'd like to. Uh, we've got some new investor and a terminology FAQs, trying to help people just educate themselves. Um, and then you can also check out current deals that we have going on. Uh, you know, if that's something that interests you as well. Yeah, absolutely, folks. Definitely check it out. Kent's the real deal. It's been an absolute pleasure, Kent. Thank you so much for the time today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, James. I had a blast. Yeah, me, me too. As always, everyone, please stay safe. Thank you.